Welcome back to the Darkest Hour podcast, the show that takes a loving look at the horror films of the past and present, delivering a thorough autopsy, the good, the bad, the ugly, sometimes the ridiculous and insane, and we've got a film like that to talk about tonight, and of course we are midway through, or roughly midway through the Halloween franchise uh, this season we have dubbed it um, Every Night is Halloween, and uh, we are talking about Halloween 5, also known as The Revenge of Michael Myers. I'm John Evans, and I'm joined as always by my two co-hosts, Vikram Wheat and Michael T. Kuchek. Mike, how are you this fine evening? I am excellent. I am, uh, my, my cup runneth over. Excellent, excellent, excellent. I like to hear that. And Vikram, are you hanging in there, Mr. Uh, Father of Two? That's a that's a, a good way of putting it. I, uh, I I spent the day smoking three and a half pounds of pork shoulder and drinking very high alcohol content beer. Uh, <laughs> so I, I I'm bo- I both have the meat sweats and uh, uh, I smell like a like a like a campfire. Um, and yeah, my my thoughts might be a, a pretty free flowing. Is what I'm shooting for. Very stream of consciousness. Not a lot of filter going on tonight. <laughs> well, we don't like filters. <laughs> So you're trying to tell us that you smell like a man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should bottle it. Yes. I mean, I mean specifically a fireman, but yes. Yes. Sm- smoky, smoky meat sweats and beer for yeah. men. Well, that is a perfect uh, musk to bring into a discussion of a <laughs> yeah. Halloween film. We're <laughs> painting a picture for the listeners. This is, a, this is an oral medium, but I want to give you some of the other senses. Everyone's got that uh, all in their nostrils right now, Vic. Thank That's you. right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone listening, go, go smoke three and a half pounds of pork shoulder and take a deep whiff. Close your eyes and imagine Vic Wheat. Just roll yeah, it up in a it. spliff and light it up. <laughs> and then watch Halloween five, and then you yes. you basically me. Yes. Well, this is kind of a trippy film, I will say. It uh, it definitely runs the uh, the gamut from the ridiculous to the mm, relatively adjacent to sublime in a couple of moments. But uh, we will get into it. Um, we customarily start with our first experience with this film, and uh, I don't have much to say on that front because I, I think this is the first time I, I saw it, actually. Yeah? Uh, why did you stay away from it, do you think? In the 80s and uh, beyond, I wasn't really that much of a Halloween fan uh, as a <laughs> franchise. You know, it wasn't one like Friday the 13th where, like, if one came out, I had to see it. I would say, you know, other than H2O, but we'll get to that when we when we get there. Uh, I didn't see most of these sequels in the theater, uh, even though I really liked part four. I don't know. I just kind of by, I think I had slasher fatigue by 1989, uh, to a degree. You know, I think even Friday, uh, by then was starting to lose steam and I was just kind of maybe looking more to, uh, foreign stuff or, you know, French, uh, zombie films or, you know, whatever I could find that just seemed more extreme. John, that's the, I just want to say that the nerdiest nerd thing I've ever heard you say is like I was too good for Halloween Five. I was looking for for more extreme French horror films, French French zombie films. I don't French even know. If that I, I, I mean, granted, I'm aware of the you know the uh, uh, French new wave extreme 
uh, horror films, you know, them and that sort of thing. But still, that was John, later. That's <laughs> true. I'm thinking uh, of yeah. like maybe a Spanish film called a uh, burial ground that um, was like, Oh this, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was my speech. That's, that's the one with the 40, the 40 year old man playing a 14 year old boy who yes. bites his other nipple off. Yeah. I, I think that I was probably in the same place. I think a couple of episodes ago, I mentioned that I had stayed away from a lot, a lot of these. I, I had not seen uh, in the theater and whatnot, because there was a period of time, just like you, that I was like, eh, Friday 13th this, Halloween that, eh, Leprechaun, whatever. I, I couldn't be bothered. I was way more interested in, you know, whatever. I was, I was starting, just then starting to explore uh, Argento and Fulci and, you know, Japanese right. stuff that I could get my hands on. So, yeah, I absolutely get exactly where your head was at, because I was the same way, too. And I, I did somehow see the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels, and I was, like, almost uniformly disappointed. So I think that put a bad taste in my mouth. You guys are fucking losers, man. I <laughs> I absolutely saw this. I, I'm pretty sure I didn't see it in the movie theater. Let's see, because 89, I would have been 10. So I didn't see it in the movie theater. But I saw it almost immediately when it came out, because I had seen Halloween 4, and like obsessed over the ending of it. It was such a cliffhanger. Uh, of course, this is in some ways kind of a letdown from where part four ends. Mm-hmm. But just to, to leap ahead a little bit, I was and my stepsister Stacy and I, we were we watched these over and over again. We obsessed over the man in black and the tattoos and like. Who let him out at the end? Like, this was the mystery that we wanted solved. This was, like, lost for 10-year-old Vic. It makes uh, sense uh, to me uh, in that we're older than you, and I think we were sort of over it, and you were at, like, still a point of real discovery where something like this was, like, really exciting. And just like Lost, they were putting stuff like The Man in Black into this movie without actually thinking about what it actually meant. They were just like, eh, we'll figure it out later. Yeah, he's like the smoke monster. In retrospect, yes. (laughs) He's the polar bear. As far as setting the stage for this film, I'm not going to go into great detail uh, this time around, but I think it is notable that it came out like one year after uh, the last one, and that's like a really quick turnaround. I think we might have seen that with Friday Part two but i'm not or somewhere in there we had a a friday or two early on that were within a year but i mean you're ramming it into production uh with that type of turnaround and i think that the quote was uh, as i see on the wikipedia here from mustafa akkad at the time um drunk off the success of halloween four we began production on halloween five so, yeah, exactly. I, I just watched that documentary and I kind of did a little research online and the very, very much the case where they were so happy with how four turned out and the reception of it that there is like we have to make five right now, right now, to the extent that they went into production without even having a full script. And they were making stuff up on on sets. They were shooting stuff and then uh, not using it at all. Or shooting stuff and then reshooting it to uh, conform to a different idea, and yeah, I, that if there's any kind of common thread in terms of the the cast and crew talking about this film, it's that there's like we we jumped into this movie so fast that we didn't even quite know what movie we were making while we were making it. So mm-hmm. I think that accounts for a lot of the kind of. Uh, the weird gear shifts, the kind of somewhat ramshackle storytelling 
Um, so I, I there there's still a lot of stuff that I like about this film, but yeah, it doesn't have the sense of a cohesive whole that four does. Right, right. And one of those things, and Vic alluded to it, and I think it's actually a great place to, like, if we're going to have a uh, bigger picture conversation before we, you know, get into the nitty gritty and kind of walk our way through the film, as we always do, it would be this idea of where we left off with Jamie. And the idea, of course, um, at the end of the last film is that she's somehow been imbued by some of the malice of the shape and takes up a knife and much like uh, he did in uh, his own childhood, uh, goes after her family. And I think that, yeah, I can see why, Vic, it, it made an impression on you as a youth um, because it's, you know, it's definitely a strong turn. And th- in this film, they pretty much clearly decided from a top-down level to abandon that and more or less without blatantly pretending it didn't happen completely um, sweep it under the rug. So I kind of want to talk about that. Like, what do you guys think about the potential that was untapped in the notion that Michael somehow influenced Jamie to stab her stepmother? And I also want to note that Donald Pleasance and Danielle Harris felt uh, pretty strongly that that would have been the way to go, that she should be evil. Um, and even uh, Michael Myers' sidekick in some way, potentially, in this film. And, of course, they don't go that way. So, uh, Mike, let's start with you. What do you think about that direction and how promising it may or may not have been? Well, I saw that interview with uh, Daniel Harris, and she kind of talks about the exact same thing, where they uh, had this take where, I mean, very obviously, uh, we're leaving it off the, at the end of four that she's been imbued with his uh, his evilness and is going to take up the the knife, so to speak. But uh, going into five, you know, they they start to second guess themselves. There, it's like, well, you know, is the audience going to, you know, if we don't have her, then who's our protagonist? Uh, you know, they didn't want to have this evil little girl running around. They want her to be good because everyone loved her so much in four. That it's it, they didn't know how to make it work in five, uh, is, is from what I gather. So, uh, but I think that there is a version of this movie in which they don't kill off Rachel quite so quickly. They keep her throughout the entire movie, and uh, she's trying to bring Jamie back from the dark side. And I, I wonder though if they that seems like the most natural storytelling choice, but at the same time. I wonder if that wouldn't have fallen into the trap of feeling like just a rehash of the the story arc that we have in four, where Jamie's being pulled on one side by her blood relation, her uncle Michael Myers, on the other side by the non blood relation, but you know just as loving, you know, kind of the good side, you know, the angel on her other shoulder. Uh, and if she goes full evil, then basically it's just the exact same thing, the exact same dynamic, just cranked up more. And so I, I can see the logic behind not going in that direction, even though it seems like the most obvious thing to do. So there it is. As I throw it to Vic, I will add that they seem to think that uh, if, if it, would, it would have kind of in the way that three got astray and by not focusing on Michael enough, that it would have diffused the focus. And if we're sort of losing him as the primary antagonist in some way, I think that's what they were afraid of, that people would reject the film. 
Whoa, my cat just just took a tumble. (laughs) There was a box, and it was in a precarious spot, and it fell right off. (laughs) Anyway. Can I I tell you how relieved I am that your cat fucked it up? (laughs) Well, he has all four legs, too. Now, in the last episode, his cat was dicking around with the cat feeder. So, Uh, yeah. yeah, (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, the darkest hour. Uh, darkest hour slash uh, slash kitty house. Oh God! By the way, that reminds me. I better unplug those feeders, or they're going to go off at eleven, and I don't think. Uh, I don't <laughs> Vic, what do you think about like the possibility, the untapped uh, potential that we might have had by following through with the arc that seemed to begin at the end of the last movie, and kind of have you know Jamie be a much more uh, dark and compromised character. And I, have a, I have a lot to say about that, but first I just want to point out that through the magic of editing, it's going to sound like I'm opening my second beer seven minutes into this podcast. <laughs> In reality, it's 30 minutes, In folks. In reality, we've been recording for an hour. And, uh, <laughs> there we go. And I just spilled a, a beer on my computer, so give me one second. All right. <laughs> Today is been a complete disaster. I know. I, I think it feels like the three of us are all standing at the top of the steps in our little clown outfits. <laughs> I want to say I think that the um, the comparison here is not to Halloween three, but to Friday the Thirteenth Part Five. The notion seems to be that they are setting up a younger protagonist to perhaps take over, because of course Mustafa Akkad did stick to the idea that Michael should appear to be human, that there wasn't going to be a lot of supernatural elements to it. And even in this film, I know that their initial uh, uh, take on the opening of the film was that uh, some kind of kid was going to use ancient runes and things to bring Michael Myers back to life. Uh, And they sort of scrapped that and reshot it with this old hobo. Um, because it's a slasher movie, and and I have a note. There's a preponderance of hobos in slasher movies. Um, By the way, that's totally ridiculous, because, like, I would abide some kind of uh, ceremony or, you know, supernatural magic bringing him back, but, like, just that this, this hobo, like, patches him up, and he lives there for a year, and then just gets up and walks out. I, I laughed out loud... Uh, a little bit, we, you know, we, within five minutes, I'm kind of laughing at this movie because like baby Moses, he's swept out into the river and he's carried downstream and rescued by a friendly guy who owns a parrot. And <laughs> I would say that I completely buy the idea that Michael Myers could reside as a guest of the state of Illinois for 10 years in a mental institution, and I, I like I, I can absolutely get my head around that, but not for one second do I buy that this guy drags him out of the river, puts him onto a bed, leaves his mask on him, and he just lies there for a year. <laughs> Utterly and ridiculous. One, and then one day, <laughs> three hundred sixty-four days, because I, I you know, uh, that brings up so many questions. Did he feed Michael? Did he change his diapers? Did he change his clothes? Did Michael interact in any way? Did they develop a little bond? Did they have inside jokes? Did Michael chop some wood or cook the oatmeal every once in a while? Uh, Or was he literally just lying there? And did this guy, during none of those 364 days, think, you know, I should 
tell the cops maybe maybe i should tell somebody about this about this giant guy full of lead with this weird mask on uh that never yeah this opening is absolutely ludicrous and yeah they they had this entire thing where he was going to be taken by druid voodoo guys and uh, they were going to do a ceremony at the end of it like he picks up the the lead priest and slams him over this stone spike and that's how he comes back to life and he's got full power and now it's like full like straight up no bullshitting around this is full-on magic michael it's magic mike now <laughs> <laughs> and he does the strip tease which seemed inappropriate yeah. so they cut the yeah. whole sequence <laughs> Channing Tatum was, but yeah. Uh, so yeah, now he's Magic Mike. But yeah, uh, and they shot that apparently, mm-hmm. and they uh, Mustafa Akkad watched it. And he said, "No, I hate all of this." And, uh, and this let's, is so let's, much let's, better what they went with because it. You what, know what it reminded me of was uh, one of the Frankenstein movies. Do you remember that they they were going for that? They were mm-hmm. going for a Frankenstein feel with the the old man and the the blind old man. Yes, they're they're tr- they're trying to replicate that but without actually thinking through the logic of it at all. So you have the audience within five minutes of this movie going, wait a minute. <laughs> you know what the dumbest thing of, of all is that yeah. at this point we have seen him, you know, just what he survived to get to this point, like being uh, shot all of those times and, you know, dynamited and he's crawling along and, you know, swept in the river. And at that point, are you really like, oh, well, something has to intervene. Uh, like, I wouldn't believe that he, he just gets up and walks away. Like, I need some kind of rational explanation why he's back in the game. Dude, He like, just go full zombie, you know? Like, just go. Like, this guy's indestructible. Nobody's going to think twice about it. But inserting this, like, ridiculous notion that somehow this guy patches him back, uh, you know, up and nurses him back to health, it's... It's way more ridiculous that some blind hermit would put together a guy who's been shot a dozen times and, you know, just kind of uh, keep him in a coma, in a vegetative state for a year. Like, that's, that is actually harder to believe than he's just, like, sort of indestructible and walks away. I do think that it, it does offer an interesting uh, morality parable because it's very much the story of the, snake, uh, the scorpion and the frog. Mm-hmm. You know, this uh, he he pulls Michael out of the water. He nurses him back to health. The moment Michael Myers comes out of the coma, first thing he does is murders this guy. And it's like, what did you expect? I'm a scorpion. I'm Michael Myers. This is what I do. <laughs> and it, it actually made me think of something that you brought up in the last episode where, uh, John, you were pointing out that there's no transactive aspect to when he kind of gives Jamie some of his mojo like she she doesn't suddenly become like a powerful person who can like beat up on her bullies and shit like that she's just uh victimized now and that's exactly the same deal with this uh with this guy is this is not a Mephistophelian evil this is a destructive evil if it touches you you're dead that's it yeah and that's one of the things this movie does kind of try to explore is just the sort of efforts in some way for Michael to change his nature or to resist it. And he definitely seems to at least consider the possibility of a way out of this or to end his, his own rampage by, by choice. And I think that is kind of an interesting thing to flirt with and to explore. Well, we certainly get there, but I just want to say, I mean, look, number one, 
this is the point in the Friday the Third, roughly the point in the Friday the Thirteenth franchise, where they realized that they had to address the fact that Jason just kept coming back to life, uh, which is when he literally does go full zombie. Um, and so I sort of understand the impulse on the part of the writer to, okay, we've got to explain how he comes back from this, right? So, like, when I was working on uh, uh, Devil's Pass, right, I had written this whole scene where uh, there are people wake up, they're in the Ural Mountains in Russia in the middle of nowhere, they wake up and there are these footprints around them, and uh, somebody puts their hand down next to the footprint to show that it is an abnormally large footprint. And so they shot it and nobody put their hand in the frame. And so when the director sent me the cut and I said, look at that, I said, listen, like, that's, this is all great, but like, you know, I can't tell what's going on in there. So they spent, I don't know how much money to CG a fucking ruler next to the foot. And I went, <laughs> what is, who brought a 12 inch metal ruler on a backpacking trip? Like that's, that's the, you didn't fix the problem. You made it infinitely worse. Yes. Well, they were they were hiking for science, Vic. They were exactly. hiking for yeah. science. Yeah, who but... doesn't hike without a fucking ruler? But so the point is that I feel like I can actually hear the writer watching this, like, revised version off of Mustafa Akkad's notes and going, wait, this doesn't make any fucking sense. What's yeah. he been, is he, has he been feeding him for a year? Like, some of the writers <laughs> asking all the same questions we are. And I sort of sympathize with that. The producer's like, eh, it doesn't work. Let's just... Yeah, he just he just wakes up and kills the guy, and the writer's going. But what? There's a if we can can we just uh, uh, no no yeah it's just classic bad Hollywood stuff like the idea that like we have a problem here people will somehow question how he can survive this and your solution poses infinitely more pressing logical questions that anyone would ask than just simply oh I I guess you just can't kill this guy. Yeah, it's it's kind of like if you're like, oh, the plane won't fly unless it's lighter. Oh, okay, let's take the left wing off. Now it's lighter. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, no, that doesn't solve the problem. In fact, <laughs> from what I gather from the, the documentaries and whatnot, it was kind of a there were a lot of cooks. They, they had three actual screenwriters, and then the director was writing, and one of the producers was. Uh, doing uncredited writing as well. So you kind of get the movie that, that you get from that kind of scenario. Uh, whereas in four, it was just the one screenwriter and you can, you know, I, I, there's, there's, you know, strikes and gutters in that screenplay, but it's still at least a cohesive whole. Mm-hmm. For sure. I will say before we, you know, bag on this movie to the point where people are like, well, why would I even listen to people talk about such a worthless film? I do want to say that, there are a lot of things in this movie that I think are really interesting and well done. And overall, like as far as just a little cat and mouse with the audience, I, I kind of dig the, the game that this movie plays with us because they slow play it like I have never seen before. And there are more fake scares and jump scares. And instead of that driving me absolutely nuts, like I actually felt there was a method to that madness and it made the scenes where we know that it's actually for real him and he's actually there and stalking someone it made Mm -hmm. that more effective and then ultimately because there really isn't a huge body count in this movie and it really breaks the 
expected pattern of every time we see someone being stalked, we know that between three and seven minutes later, they will die. Like, this movie completely subverts that expectation. And, like, more than half the time, the character gets out of it. So, like, you really expect, absolutely, they are going to die. And then they don't. And you're like, wow, okay, uh, great. And then it happens again, and they survive again. And so a lot of these characters make it through, you know, two-thirds of the movie. And it it just kind of ends up playing like a, a very different game with the audience that, that I, ha- I haven't seen a lot. And I actually, to me, it makes the kills when they do happen a little more impactful. The thing that really struck me about watching this film was I could see much more clearly the influence taken from the first one. Cause you know, in four, they kept talking about how they wanted to make it as much like the first one as possible. La la. And they kind of do in certain ways, but with this one, uh, you can see the provenance a lot more clearly. Uh, you know, we have the daylight stalking scenes. We have the kind of, kind of, you know, the bouncy energiness of the girls. Uh, you know, there's. I, I, I found myself a lot more reminded of one with this film. Uh, not not all the way through, and not in all departments. Don't get me wrong, but in in a lot of ways, I was like, God, this is kind of better capturing the spirit of the first one than four. Yes. Because the, the way that Michael stalks, like he actually is slower in this film or more meticulous in his surveillance and his methodology than he even was in the first movie, as opposed to like, he had sped it up ridiculously in the last couple of uh, sequels. Certainly two comes to mind where, you know, he just basically, uh, oh, there's a person, kill them. You know, like in this yeah. movie, he's back to like, again, playing games with his victims and, and we'll get to it. But I actually love the Michael in a car stuff, which is like a big part of this movie. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed all that stuff. I also liked the fact that uh, like one, Loomis comes across as completely unhinged. I, mm-hmm. I, I think that Pleasance took the idea of cranking this character all the way up to 11 because in four he's basically a useless good guy uh, who we follow the the trail of michael myers but he's consistently protagonistic um and in this one he's uh he's a loose cannon he's crazy he's Mm -hmm. he's completely off his right and he he has protagonistic schemes in place but keep in mind at the end of four he wanted to shoot a little girl and in this one uh he has multiple scenes in which he's grabbing jamie and shaking her around and screaming right in her face and then we have that climax at the end where he uses her like picks her up and straight up uses her as bait to lure michael in that trap it's like damn this is they they made some tough choices with this character this time around this is pretty cool Mike, as a, as a parent, I just want to say there's a thin line between rocking and shaking, and let's not come down too hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the, the, the fact that your uh, sons are both still alive uh, are due to the fact that you rock them instead of shaking them. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. No shaking um, no right, babies in the yeah. room household. <laughs> I think Loomis being a wild card character, more of a a trickster and semi-antagonist in this film is one of the things I really like about it. So, okay. Uh, well, we've, we, I think we've talked enough about Michael's uh, part of this sequence where we're seeing him revive and, and kill his benefactor, but they're intercutting it with Jamie having a world-class freakout. 
as she apparently experiences this at the same time that he does. And she's stricken by the truth that her angelic looking brother is feeling much better. Thank you very much. And it's not good news as she's writhing in agony as her nurse uh, fails to comfort her and screams for help. And I think that this sequence is without reservation good. I think both of these performances are really strong. And I mean, this is really a a selling out as an actress where she just goes, uh, Daniel Harris just goes for broke. And I I hope they didn't do 20 takes of this scene. No, they they actually did one. This was a one and done scene. Ah, see, there you go. It looked like something you would not want to put a whatever 12 year old girl through uh, you know, 16 times because she's giving it all she has. And I think the, the, the nurse, like this, you know, uh, day player nurse, I guess she's got a couple of lines, but like, you know, I think she is right there with her. And, and yeah, she, she's great. Yeah. Yeah. She's solid. I, I would say that, uh, you know, just, just as an overall observation, Daniel Harris is really good in four. She's fantastic in this movie. I, I, mm-hmm. she's, I, 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 Spends the entire watch being vaguely blown away by how talented she is, yes. uh, especially especially at this young age. They're basically having her carry this movie, and it's not a children's movie either. They're not doing a Harry Potter thing. Uh, this is like she's the protagonist of this horror film. I saw uh, some she, crappy um, extras on my Blu-ray, and like the actress who plays Tina was saying that like. Danielle Harris was dropping these like pro level acting terms and stuff. Like she, this girl had come from uh, TV and you know done soaps and stuff, but she was you know this was her first movie, but she wasn't a complete neophyte, and she was just blown away at the the craft that Danielle Harris already had. Yeah, I, she because she has lots and lots and lots of huge, tough emotional beats throughout this entire movie, and she sells all of it. I'm never thinking. Uh, child actor. I, she's just an actor who happens to be, you know, eleven or twelve or where the fuck she is right here. But and to I, be yeah. honest, how bad would this movie be if she was? Uh, I mean, sadly, like like Billy, her her co-star here, uh, the the yeah. little boy who has a crush on her. Like he is terrible. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I it goes to show that uh, talent of Daniel Harris's level is uh, really is a one in a million. You know, it's mm-hmm. you, you don't just find him. Uh, but uh, rolling back just a little bit uh, to the opening credits, uh, we intercut a, a knife slashing up a pumpkin in a violent manner. And uh, a little trivia thing that I, I tripped over, uh, they shot this in the summertime and pumpkins weren't in season. So this is kind of, uh, they, they'd use uh, watermelon and squash to masquerade as this pumpkin. Oh, so, it looks uh, looks pretty good. I'm glad you brought that up because I did want to yeah. reference that, that in a way we're going back to the the early films, you know, of course, that have these very pumpkin-centric uh, opening credits. And in this one, we, we, you know, we just, we know it's a pumpkin being carved, but there's these exaggerated slashing effects and, you know, uh, flashing blades and, you, you know that it's a jack-o'-lantern and not a teenager, but I think in a way, like, the message that the the, the sequence is trying to, to convey to the viewer is that we're serious. This is a hardcore version of the original title sequence that, you know, is a little different from, from theirs. And I think it's somewhat ridiculous, but I, I kind of appreciate the, the spirit of it and, to an extent, the originality of it. Yeah, we're not going to just look at a pumpkin. We're going to slash it up. And, yeah, the, the sequence is... Uh, a little bit like watching Dexter Morgan eat breakfast. 
Yes. That's a good, that's a really good point. Yeah. Where it's these innocuous things, but it has these sort of yeah. connotations. And in this case, it's the, the sound effects mostly in the music that are, you know, making it uh, menacing. I thought it worked though. I mean, I, I actually thought this was interesting. And one of the things I really enjoy about this, which we'll get into a little bit more, but the spin that they put on the soundtrack, I think really works. I think they, they, they sort of do something original and kind of atonal and you you're, you're you're starting to get the ways that they're steering away from it uh just in this opening here it's very 90s though i mean we're in 1989 and i, I kind of oh. had like this very early 90s tv feel with some of the stings like there's a lot of stings in this movie and yeah uh you, you know me guys i'm, I'm critical of stings <laughs> yeah well i it did feel very synthy and yeah. I wasn't a huge fan of it, and especially because it's like, dude, you have the ability to build your foundation. Your foundation is one of the greatest horror movie themes ever written. Like that's that's your starting point, and all you can do, and and uh, to mostly eschew it for these kind of generic synthy beats. I, I was baffled by that, but. I, I disagree, Mike. I'm telling you, go back and listen. Not so much to the 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 stingers, but the the way that they deploy the score. It has. It's like if you if you were playing the original score, sort of off key in a weird way. It was. I mean, it's it is sort of vaguely off putting. But it's a horror movie, and it should be vaguely off-putting, especially if you're going to say, "All right, we're doing the fifth one of these. What are we going to do? It's a little bit different." Uh, I mean, it really is like if you were playing the Halloween score on a harpsichord with your hand, with your fingers, just kind of one key off on on everything. Mm. Uh, I, I actually really I appreciated that they did something not just different, but again, vaguely off-putting. Like that they were willing to take the risk of being atonal and kind of you know, what if Philip Glass wrote the score for Halloween? Actually, it would, it would just sound the score for Halloween, but. Uh, yeah, I agree. Actually, Vic, I, I'm I'm picking out the stings as as something that bothered me, but for the most part, I, I did enjoy the score. I'm not going to say it's great, but I, I don't totally disagree. I think there are some. It definitely uh, doesn't detract from the movie. So I think that this sequence goes on and on and on with Jamie's long, convulsive freak out with an entire medical team working on her. And again, I just was thinking this looks like a miserable two days on the set. For, for everyone involved. Cause there's a lot of shots and it goes on and, you know, a lot of moving parts, a lot of characters, a lot of people doing stuff and dialogue and Loomis shows up and he knows exactly what's happening with Jamie. Like he, he stops the guy from opening her trachea for God's sake, the doctor. He's like, she'll stabilize. How does Loomis appear in like the fucking emergency room in the middle of that? That was one of those things where I was like, Wait, who let him in there? Like, isn't there a... Doesn't somebody say no? Like, that's a surgery. They're going to cut her throat open. Oh, they're not in the... Um, they're not in the hospital. They're just in that clinic. They're still in the clinic? Yeah. They mm-hmm. still shouldn't be letting strangers into a room where they're going to be opening a girl's throat. I don't know. It was it well, was really... Like- Vic, let, let, let's, like, give Loomis for a little credit that he's the one character who has not forgotten what happened last year and you know, the last time around, even before, <laughs> like he's going to be there on fucking October 30th and he's going to be hanging around and he's going to be talking to people and making sure that he has, you know, some, some autonomy in the situation. 
keep keep in mind that he is a doctor. <laughs> Doctors can go anywhere they want. Like they just yeah. have their medical license. The the other thing too is that Loomis immediately understands that now there there is a supernatural force that is informing uh, Jamie's actions. Uh, he, he's just completely bought into the entire supernatural thing because repeat, if there's something that makes me a little nuts about this movie is repeatedly, uh, Jamie will have, uh, an episode and that apparently is enough to summon the entirety of the Haddonfield police department to go here, to go there, to do this, to do that. And, uh, I, I think at one point in time, Mears was just like, you know, I can't send out my entire force every time a little girl twitches. And I was like, yes, that's true. It's like, you know, it's like, and then yeah, she's, he does it again at the very end at a critical juncture. Yeah. And they, they but they just keep doing it. It's, uh, I, I was kind of, Oh brother, you know, well that, but, that uh, sequence particularly, and we'll get there, but like, we're talking about just stuff that makes no sense at all. Like the, the last of her, of her visions where she starts calling out Billy's name, Michael implants fake visions in her head now, or did no, he go kill? No, him? no I think no. He, he came back, right? There, there's an entire sequence they shot where he rampages around the clinic? and kills the, and kills the SWAT team. Who's protecting Billy and kills Billy or, uh, or, or presumably Billy is dead. And they, they just didn't put it in the movie. They, they, oh. they thought it, Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So uh, that was really weird because you see a body come out of the clinic that, with a sheet over it, and they pull it back, and you see a guy like turn sideways. Uh, it looks like somebody died there, but and then Michael shows up in a police car. But it's all extremely convoluted and murky, like the logic yeah. of what what happened and when. Well, he he, he teleported from the farm back to Haddonfield. Uh, murdered pretty much all the rest of the cops except for the one guy in the house, uh, all by himself, and I guess the kid too. And then that's only then did he come back to the the Myers household. Okay, <laughs> so we have Jamie waking up, much feeling much better, and her sister is there, and the dog Max, and you know dogs always fare very well in Halloween movies. <laughs> Michael's very kind yeah. to them. <laughs> what, what was the name? It's not what, often you see a dog in a movie and you're like, oh fuck, he's gonna die. Yeah, yeah. You know? it, it, like, man, it's a Halloween movie. I was like, tough break, Max. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> that's the thing is, you you know that Rachel got this large, ferocious dog as protection, but apparently she didn't hear the news of what happened uh, on the original Halloween night with Laurie Strode that, uh, uh, what was that German Shepherd's name? Oh God, I don't remember. But that was the uh, second Halloween night, by the way. That, that was the second one. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yes. But I, you know, the, the one where, uh, you know, Michael first came back home. Yes. Um, yes. He, he uh, was home and then he left and then he came well, home. Well, the first yes. thing, he, he kills the dog with Annie too. I mean, that's, he, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a ocean of dead dogs lying behind him. <laughs> yeah. Like dead Dead teenagers who didn't listen to the barking dog. Yes, because Michael gets hungry and he eats a dog, and that occurs off screen. And then when he goes by Nancy's house, uh, there is a German Shepherd who gives him a hard time. And she's relieved when the dog finally stops barking. Yeah. Little, little understanding exactly why, why it's going on. So anyway, uh, apparently none of this information has made its way out to the world at large. So Rachel has procured... Uh, the exact opposite uh, protection that she would need against Michael Myers. She should have just walked around with a uh, fire extinguisher. 
for the rest of the world. Because apparently from four, we've seen that that paralyzes him. So, yes, I, either that or a knitting needle would would knock him up for several minutes. Well, one of the things that I, I noted in this film, and I think is true of almost all of them in some way, is the shortness of memories that people have about all of this. He quickly is forgotten. Like if he's gone for even one year, people seem to kind of, you know, relegate him to a myth or a legend or, you know, folklore. And a lot of like important nitty gritty information is, is forgotten. And I think that that's interesting. The, the thing that really jumped out at me in terms of that strain of logic was the beat later on where for the third goddamn time in the series, we play the card where someone pretends to be Michael Myers and he plays a little prank. And it's like, didn't you hear about the last guy that did that <laughs> last Halloween a year ago? He got gunned down by a bunch of rednecks. It was just a year ago, man. We're not talking about long time. Or uh, 10 years before that, the guy that got hit by a car running away in a Michael Myers mask and, and exactly. burned to death. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, listen, if you want to get murdered by cops, this is how you do it and have it feel, or anybody, you know, put on a Michael Myers mask and play a, a, a funny prank. That's how you get murdered in this town. I think so. they get a lot of mileage out of it in this movie, though. Like, I, I actually like what they do with it, and we'll, we'll get there, but, like, it has a couple of uses um, that, that are kind of fun. I agree, but I, it's, you know what else was strange to me was we learned very early on again when when Rachel shows up with Tina and everybody else um, that uh, guys I apologize my my youngest is screaming in the background and he's actually saying daddy and I'm ignoring him so well you got tough, tough, tough him up love, somehow man. Tough that's love, right yeah. so sorry um, I, I'm sorry young Michael we we come up on like October thirtieth. Literally a year after what had you know after everybody was murdered, right? And like Rachel's leaving, and her parents are leaving, and like everybody's just leaving this girl alone. And I was like, literally, I've written down here. I'm like, everybody's leaving on Halloween again. <laughs> like yeah. you, you guys can't wait. Like put your trip off for two days or something. Like make sure that Michael Myers doesn't come back. But no, like they're all gonna leave Jamie alone again on Halloween. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would certainly leave if I was Rachel. I would just bounce the hell out of there, man. I'd be like, I'll so, I'll, I'll, I'll be in, fast enough. That was her problem. Yeah, I'll be in Calcutta for a week. Let let <laughs> let me know if anybody survives. Well, at least bring Jamie along. <laughs> oh, yeah, just put 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 some food in the bowl for Jamie. Make sure the water's full. Please, please, can I get taken? Are there any Eastern Europeans that are interested in kidnapping me? Oh, yeah, oh no man! So in this scene, we uh, introduce the character of Tina, who I thoroughly liked a lot. Mm-hmm. I I really like this character because she uh, she reminds me of the bouncy, fun energy of the three girl or two of the three girls in the original Halloween. Uh, we we seem to forget that they were like really kind of smart alecky and kind of. Uh, jokey and and a little weird and and kind of over the top and uh, they seem to be having a lot of fun with life and that's what makes their deaths uh, impactful when it occurs. It's like oh geez, you know, you really hate to see that light snuffed out. And I felt the same way with Tina here. I really liked her. I I, I dug her eccentricities. So I think she's hot as fuck. You know, uh, there's a lot going on with her. 
So I, what I actually think is really interesting about Tina is that she does seem like the plucky supporting character that is then thrust into the leading role, which I really like. I mean, it's like if you made the movie about Linda instead of making it about Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, I think that's an interesting take on it. Uh, and I, I agree. I, you know what? I'm actually, and I, I had this thought when we get to the moment when, when it occurred to me, I will tell you, I think she is my favorite and in many ways the most fleshed out of the uh, sort of quote unquote final girls in this or the Friday the 13th franchise. Ooh, I like it. I like that statement a lot. And I, I think that I, I'm not going to disagree with you. And I will say that this is particularly, again, one of the weird, interesting things that this movie does is we have a stealth co-lead. We have mm-hmm. a like unexpected, under the radar, basically um, someone posing as a victim is this is the is the co-lead, female lead to sure. Daniel Harris. And it is Tina. Because we absolutely think at this point in the movie that Rachel will again be the co-lead. And time and time again, the very thing I was talking about before where we we absolutely think Tina is dead and she doesn't die. And we gradually realize that on some level this is kind of a a two-hander in some ways. And she is the, as you said, the final girl. I love that. And you just do not see that coming. I think that that's one of the aspects that gives this movie a little bit of a off kilter feel because in four, it's a very traditional protagonist setup. It's like, here's our protagonist. Here's Jamie. uh, Here are their arcs. Here are their problems. And, you know, we lock it in. We just kind of sit back, relax and and watch it play out. Whereas with this one, uh, Rachel appears and you go, oh, well, she's back. She's our new Laurie Strode, I guess. And then she gets killed before even plot point one, really. And and again, you know, Tina keeps finding herself in, herself in these situations where you think she's going to die. She thinks she's going to die. And then she just kind of doesn't. And then you look up and you're just like, fuck, I, it's, we're like an hour in and she's still not dead. Is she kind of our lead, I think, sort of? But it's not even but, a clear baton uh, being passed because we don't actually see Rachel die for sure. And I think that's one of the, the touches that I think, like, sell this little sleight of hand even more. Because half of me kind of expects Rachel to pop up and save her at one of these junctures, you know, like, somehow. But what we then get her dead at the very end. And that, that was really the only full confirmation that we got that, that she, she was, yes, absolutely killed. I was actually thinking the same thing about Tina because both of those characters – just kind of get one mm-hmm. little stab in the upper left-hand portion of the chest, and then we cut away. Like, not, neither one of them are, like, thoroughly murdered. Uh, I, and you presume that that's what's going to happen because Michael Myers is getting at them, but we, we don't clearly see evidence that there's no way whatsoever that they're not, not going to pop up and go, Jamie, run! And yeah, go, it's not hey, even, exactly, it's not even cut that way where you're just kind of, you know how, like, one stab, you're like, okay, that character's dead, but the way yeah. we cut out of the sequence with Rachel and Michael in the house, like, it's very ambiguous. It's very much like they're in the middle of this fight and then we just cut. The other thing that I think is sort of interesting about Tina as a as a character is that her boyfriend is the douchey boyfriend of the girl who gets killed early, right? Oh, like yeah. when we 
when we meet Mike, which happens, which I, I feel like we're kind Mikey's. of at that point, so it's okay to bring this up, right? Like, we met him, and I was like, the fuck is she doing with this guy? Like, you know what I mean? Like, she's kind of making excuses for him, and it's, oh, we like to do it in the car. And it's, and there's all this kind of stuff, but I was like, this is the, like, the the 50s greaser who gets killed in the first 15 minutes of a Friday the 13th movie, but his girlfriend is not the protagonist. Like, she's always... I don't know. It, it, everything about that relationship, even compared to four, I mean, I know that Brady winds up sort of cheating on her, but he at least has these, this sort of redemptive moment at the end. You get the idea that he was, you know, maybe just a horny teenager and not an asshole. This guy's just an asshole. Like, he's cannon fodder from the moment you lay, his, lay eyes on him. I think that the idea is she's going through a bad boy phase and just this extremely broad caricaturish kind of character is the screenwriter's idea of who that character is. And so they, they just reach for a really off the shelf kind of a, kind of a setup. I, I, he's, he's stereotypical and he doesn't get a whole lot of screen time, but uh, yeah, his beats is he's not, not only a, a douche, but he's also consistently a douche, <laughs> and and I, I think that he's a faux tough guy too. Because the moment he's presented with Michael Myers, he immediately turns scared, mm. and 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 gets eaten alive within seconds of meeting an actual force of danger. So well, yeah. it's funny because you get the beat where they they startle him like a legit that would have freaked out almost anybody with just the timing of it. They startle him with a mask. And he is still yeah. cold. Like, he does not react in the slightest bit. So I was kind of like, oh, okay. Well, there might be a little there there in terms of his uh, mm-hmm. his mental toughness, at least. And no, yeah, like the second that Michael gets his mitts on him, like just there's this he's pissing his pants look on his face. I was mostly laughing at him in the interaction with the other boyfriend because I, I could almost go that I, I was almost kind of selling myself on the idea that he's trying to play this kind of faux tough guy uh, to impress uh, Tina, uh, but then when he interact, when the girls are out of earshot, and the guy's like, uh, "Hey, man, you know, pull around, and I'll put this free beer into your trunk," and he blows smoke in his face, and he's just like, "Yeah, whatever, dude." It's just like, Ow, "Dude, what the? What is your problem, man? <laughs> your car does not give you extra hit points, my friend." <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we'll talk about Mike plenty, and I want to note that I find it awesome that they do, they get mileage out of the fact that he has the same name as Michael Myers. But Yeah, there, there's that beat with, with the car where it's like, yeah, Michael. <laughs> Michael. Oh, I love that sequence. All right, yeah, that's great. Let's, uh, let's get back to the scene that we're in, and with that, I am going to open a beer. So oh, yeah. Loomis shows up and he is the buzzkill in these kids' lives. And that's kind of how they, they think of him at this point. Yes, people are forgetting what happened a mere year ago. But I do think part of the resilience of the young is that they want to get on with life. And when they have somebody who's just like resolutely reminding them all the time about death and, you know, risk and danger, like I think that it, it is kind of natural to, you know, be over it by a year later. They really seem to have constructed Tina as the antithesis of that, that she is almost like willfully and forcefully being like, no, we're going to go out. We're going to have fun. Nobody's going to die. Like it's she is so kind of boisterous that you can tell, I don't know, there's something else underneath it. 
but that she is the antithesis to Dr. Loomis. Yeah, there's a beat at the Halloween party in Act 2 where I think it's either Loomis or the sheriff is just like, no, don't go out there. And she's like, I like not making any sense and just runs away. (laughs) But uh, while they're in the scene, suddenly a rock comes through the window and uh, with a note attached. And the note says, here, let me pull this up. The evil child must die. Oh, yeah, 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 yes. Uh, So apparently the good people of Haddonfield still uh they have not forgotten though the the girls have tried to put it behind them but they're still uh you know if they're not yelling at houses they're throwing rocks through windows at little girls like the tough people that they are yeah this is good though i mean because like they do reference he says because she attacked her stepmother and that's why they fear her especially on halloween like that that's logical that should track we should have that in the movie but we basically you know don't do anything with it Beyond. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we don't have any mobs. We, uh, we we don't see her getting dirty looks from anybody. It's it's pretty. We get exactly this one beat to establish the idea, and then completely forget about it. Well, so, she's yeah. hermetically sealed. Like I think the last movie kind of shows her relationship with society, and 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 this movie, you know, she's basically just being moved around like uh, you know a, a football, you know, in, in a sort of a nuclear Maltese. Nuclear football, Maltese Falcon kind of a way. You know? <laughs> well, they put her into this uh, children's uh, ward kind of a scenario, but it, it looks very nice. Uh, and, you know, Haddonfield never feels a surprise uh, because it seems on the outside that it would be a small rural community in Illinois, but they have a nice big hospital. They have stuff like this for children. They have hundreds of police at their disposal, uh, a SWAT team. It's uh, pretty impressive. You know, i got to say, uh, we have a line here where she says, Rachel, about leaving for this uh, weekend. She says, I already promised my parents. And then, you know, of course, your thought is, again, like, well, why, why are the parents doing this? Dude, she, the foster child, stabbed your wife or stabbed you if you're, you know, these parents. I don't blame them for yeah. maybe taking a step back from their custodial duties of Jamie. <laughs> I, I think the only true question is, did he get that job? Are they going to Cleveland or to the tropical <laughs> island? <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, if, if, if my wife was stabbed and fell into the bathtub by our ward, our, you know, sort of adopted uh, stepdaughtery person, I'm not sure yeah. I'd be, you know – as enthusiastic about raising her as I was before. Yeah, that's definitely a formula for being shunted off into a home, yes. That's that's precisely what happens to you when that happens. Let me ask you guys this, because this was something that I thought was sort of interesting. So we're we're confronted here, especially with the fact that Jamie can can no longer speak, right? Mm -hmm. And I was struck by the ways in which, especially in the wake of her having attempted to stab her adopted mother, um that this brings her closer to Michael, right? That she can't talk in the same way that Michael can't talk. Um, And I sort of wondered if this was, so she hadn't been consumed completely by this thing. She had a moment where it got a hold of her and the fact that she wasn't speaking meant that she hadn't completely broken free of whatever it was that she'd been infected with. I actually found that enormously effective and even as an explanation for, okay, she tried to do this thing. She, she stabbed her stepmother, whatever attacked her stepmother, but now, okay, who is she now? What's happening now? And I thought, well, the fact that she can't talk means 
this was an enormous trauma that she hasn't gotten over. And what we see over the course of this movie is her overcoming that a little bit uh, and and sort of fighting off whatever influence Michael has on her. What did, what do you, what did you guys think about that? Does any of that work for you? Yeah, it does work for me. And I, I, I was wrestling with this conflict that she has with Loomis at first, because to me, it, it felt so contrived that he's constantly trying to get her to uh, speak and to reveal things and to participate in a way that she's, uh, you know, refusing somehow. And I, I just kind of came to grips with, this is a movie where like, it's, it doesn't make it easy for you to uh, understand it or appreciate it or like it. But like, if you do the work, you're like, Oh, actually that does make sense. And another example is, it's just that she's so freaking terrified and traumatized that at this point she's jelly. And that's why she's resisting is that she can't face it. And, you know, without it being really obvious or particularly well executed, her arc in the movie is finding the courage to uh, face this again and stand up to Michael and put herself in jeopardy, which is something, you know, no one, a, a, a little girl of her age and what she's been through should have to do. But, you know, this movie doesn't play it like, well, she's Ellen Ripley and she's just going to be a badass. Like, she's more like a, a real little girl in a situation like this. And it's damned hard for her to, to find the courage to go toe-to-toe in any way with Michael Myers. Yeah, yeah. I, she, uh, I, I took this to be about 50% psychosomatic uh, reaction to the stress of that uh, evening a year ago and about 50% uh, mystic druid voodoo magic, uh, in the sense that it, in that moment when she stabbed her foster mother, she was imprinted with the same evil that had gotten into Michael when he was younger, even younger than her. And for you know, and thus she would exhibit some of the same symptoms, including uh, you know, this truculence. Uh, and being and she, you. She, that's kind of the idea. And I'll, you know, she doesn't tilt her head in a curious fashion or put a sheet over her head at a moment in time. But, uh, she does have uh, an affinity for clown outfits and yeah, <laughs> there, there's a, there, there's a period of time when, uh, she doesn't speak just like her uncle, but she never goes into the, in this movie. Um, and this is again, one of those sort of maybe missed opportunities. She never goes into that blank disconnected fugue state, the nothing behind the eyes, uh, you know, where she was that in that state when she stabbed her stepmother. And that's kind of the defining characteristic of someone who has, you know, whatever afflicts Michael Myers. And in this film, yeah. instead, she's like totally emotionally present and her feelings, right. her sensitivity are like raw through everything. She's, she never, you know, becomes this unplugged soulless automaton, you know? So like, it's very much her, her suffering is profound because she, she feels and experience and shares what he's doing and what's happening with him and, and the sort of the jeopardy and the pain of everyone else. Yeah. This evil got, uh, was able to just hit her just hard enough to give her uh, some symptoms for a period of time, but it's neither as all the way down the road as with Michael, nor is as permanent as it is with Michael. So, and she's uh, actually able to connect with him for a brief moment in time later in the movie. So you never know. There might still be a little something left in there. Um, I think it's just uh, a credit to her strength of character as a, as a human being. 
Oh yeah, that too. And uh, for, from the documentary, Dan- Daniel Harris was very clear that when she was doing all, all of these scenes, she had absolutely no idea why she her character couldn't speak. Her sign her sign language was kind of impressive. Rachel comes home with uh, her her big ferocious dog, who's going to be absolutely useless, little to her knowledge, and she she's sees a shaking branch. And I like the fact that you know, just like in one, uh, we go back to the the fact that we can. Uh, have a beautiful sunlit day in a very bucolic, nice neighborhood and create, you know, this tension and danger of, of this, uh, of this character hanging around. Uh, I, I dig that they're, you know, they're going back to that. Well, uh, I, I didn't feel that was a lift. I thought was, um, Let's build on that foundation. And I really liked uh, this entire sequence when he comes, you know, mm-hmm. uh, he comes into the house and he's watching again, just like in one, you know, he spends a lot of time kind of drifting around, watching her, observing, thinking in two and four, he would have just bulldozed straight in there and cut off her head. And this one, he's, he's, he lurks. There's a lot of lurking going on. I appreciate the lurk. And it subverts I, expectations. I want to say two things. The first is what I love about this sequence is that she gets the phone call and she gets in there and you're sort of waiting for either she's going to get strangled while she's on the phone or she's going to ignore them or whatever. But like, no, she does the thing that every rational human being would do when somebody calls and says, get out of the house. Even though she's only in a fucking towel, she runs out of the house. And you're like, oh, thank God, a smart person in a horror movie. Like, surely she's going to survive. Just like in four, right? Exactly. Characters kept doing stuff where it's just like, yeah, let's get the fuck higher. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but I was so I was really impressed with you're you're really sure that this is her death sequence that we're watching. She runs out and then you know it, it, it's sort of over. The, the cops come back. But I where I disagree is when you watch, especially the first Halloween. When we talked about this in the podcast. Michael moves in concentric circles. They get closer and closer and closer sort of culminating in the scene where he he does the ridiculous thing with the sheet and the glasses to pretend to be Bob just to see how close he can get into the scene. And instead here we have this moment where he's in the closet right behind her and then walks outside. And it's, so he's already gotten as close as he can possibly get and then steps outside it stretches credulity for me. It doesn't. It doesn't fit with sort of his mo. Like I'm okay with him getting closer, but at a certain point, once you're in the closet and the girls on the other side, Michael's gonna kill her. Yeah, Vic, I agree with you on that because in the Carpenter movie, there's a there's a method. You can see the methodology, the concentric circles. Whereas in this, they're kind of they're doing a version of it, but they're just having Michael be there and then go away. So yeah. there, there isn't there isn't a method to the the thought process of his actions. Mm, again, like the movie does not do a great job of providing subtle and nuanced hints that nonetheless portray the psychological motivation of its character. Like, yeah, the movie is not at that level, but I'm not necessarily saying that I can, there's no way to justify why he doesn't uh, kill her there. You know, like I don't, I'm not in that camp. I, I think that because of who she is, and if you're going to accept at all that he slow plays people in this movie, I really am just fine with he is absolutely taking his time with her and enjoys like how he could take her at any time. 
but he's going to do it when he feels like doing it. Like that to me is not, I don't hate that. I did have a note. How much more slow play can we get? He's got the knife a millimeter from her spinal cord and doesn't take the shot. In terms of Rachel as a character, uh, the growth from four to five that I noticed, especially in this sequence, uh, is that in the in four she's uh, I, I wouldn't use the word dowdy, but she's definitely mm-hmm. the square girl next door. She's uh, a little more uh, she's she's not Jamie Lee Curtis in the first one, but they're kind of playing that card. She's a little t- tighter wound. She's a little more square. She's a little she's not really cool or. Uh, open really, yeah. They they, they, they were looking for her boyfriend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, in this movie, especially in the sequence, uh, they do two things with her. The first one is they drench her in sunlight, and they they kind of loosen up her hair, and so she's super blonde, and she's really, I, I and she's like a ray of sunshine just bopping around the scene. And the other thing, too, is they sexualize her a lot more. Uh, we watch her take off her socks, and then sh- we get a uh, shower scene uh, through the door. And then there's uh, some panty prancing. There's some yeah, you know, running yeah, up the stairs yeah. in her undies. Yeah, she looks exactly. a lot better um, in this movie. Her hair is better. And I, I think that, like, I kind of took that as. You know that was a big year in a in a girl's life, but I think that it it, it definitely uh, increases her appeal for sure. And yeah, it, it's more yeah. classical she, she, horror movie. Yeah, there's a she evinces a ton of of life in this uh, in in the short sequence, and uh, you know she's sexy and she's fun and she's you know like a ray of sunshine just bopping around. I kind of sold it to myself with the idea that she had such a close brush with death. A year ago, that now she's like embracing life, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. She's more adult, and for whatever reason, more uh, she's prettier overall. But uh, yeah, it works. One note on Michael here, as far as his uh, depiction, like we we made a lot of hay last time about his uh, weird lumpy build and the fact that the guy was wearing like hockey pads under the the. Um, costume and you know was a guy that really didn't have the build well this guy i think definitely has a a much stronger uh physicality and shape uh no pun intended than the last one uh one weird thing about his mask though i noticed like it's really open in the back a lot like you kind of have these Mm -hmm. sort of flaps open uh it's not like really sealed in the back it almost kind of looks like a fake trapezius muscle a hundred percent agree. I really enjoyed uh, the acting performance. I mean, uh, what's the stuntman's name again? Shanks. Shanks. Yes. Yeah. He. Yeah. I. I love him so much. I forgot his name. Uh, but yeah, I, I thought that you know, whereas in four, I was uh, somewhat disappointed with the Michael that we were presented with in a lot of that movie. I thought that bandage has Michael was pretty fucking awesome, and then we just jettisoned him, and I felt that loss. And in this movie, huge come around. I, I thought that he was a really good Michael Myers, uh, especially when the mask comes off. I, I thought that, uh, you know, just uh, his, his, not only his physicality, but also the look of the mask and the outfit and his performance were uh, some of the strongest Michael Myers stuff since the first one. That's one of the crazy things about this movie, again, is that, like, it's sort of sad that there's so much that it does right, that it's a shame that there's these howlingly awful aspects to the movie because like if you could just somehow combine the best stuff of four and five like you would you would really have a great 
Halloween movie, and I'm enjoying these a lot more than I thought I would. I, I think that the main failing is that they rushed too quickly into production. If they had just developed the material longer and went into production with a firm idea of the movie that they wanted to make, uh, I think that we could have had, yeah, I wouldn't say a minor class, but, but it would definitely beat the fuck out of two, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. Just because, I mean, there is more, I wouldn't say clarity of vision, but just like interesting ideas and intent than, than in, say, that movie. You can see the great movie trying to get made around the edges of this film. Yeah, yeah. And, and even though it was rushed, like it doesn't feel rushed from a production standpoint because I believe that the way that scenes are constructed, shot, covered, and edited is you know, generally pretty damn professional. It looks great. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that um, especially the sequences in the Myers house at the end, uh, the sequences in that barn – uh, especially when uh, he's driving around and chasing them through that field. Uh, it, uh, it's a movie that very, very often looks really good. And like, I, there, there were parts of four that I thought were good, but for the most part, it, it felt a little TV-ish, a little murky. I could point out scenes that I really enjoyed, but it's like consistently this movie looks really well shot, uh, whether it's this really sun-drenched sequence or, you know, when night goes down and, uh, you know, that party scene looks great. Uh, yeah, there, it, this, this one doesn't have that kind of TV-ish feel to it. We said this in four, but it just continues here. And I actually think it's a bit stronger. The performances matter. I mean, the fact that you have uh, Daniel Harris and, and Donald Pleasance. I mean, again, Donald Pleasance is, is on the ropes here. Like, he's... He, he's really going for it. And I think you get with Danielle Harris playing the, the mute and the sign language and like, and all that kind of stuff. And then you have Tina taking again, I think the most interesting take on a final girl that we've seen in a slasher film, you put that together with decent cinematography and all the, the script fuck ups that they, that they couldn't plaster over. Obviously that hurts the movie, but you're right. Like you can feel a better movie just pushing at this uh, in a couple of scenes that really wants to break out of it. The the cast and crew talk a lot of in the documentaries. The, uh, they talk a lot about the director, and uh, a couple of them were like, he's French. I think that says it all. <laughs> apparently... Apparently, like, you know, I, I, they all liked him, but, you know, very, very arty French, you know, is coming from a, you know, a you know, so everything looks great, but when it comes to storytelling, it's like, eh, whatever. And I, you know, I, the three of us will endlessly forgive, you know, goofy shit and fucking Suspiria or mm-hmm. any given Fulci movie because it's like, yeah, who gives a shit? It's, it's, it looks awesome and it's scary as fuck. And I think that that's the sensibility that uh, they're bringing to Five, where it's like, you know, is, is it scary? Does it look good? Are you having fun watching it? Well, you know, all right, then storytelling-wise, it's like, oh, yeah, it's, it's a bunch of kids. There's Michael Myers. Yeah. <laughs> the end. <laughs> yeah. Right, like, because the plot never gets ambitious enough to really become convoluted. I mean, yeah, there's this absurdly useless character walking around town with spurs and a, and a, and a satchel. Um, but, like, the, the, the story is pretty experiential, like, just a series of... Uh, sequences where you know of suspense and tension and uh you know 
a, a series of fake fake outs that that build to something real. So it doesn't have to be um, the French Connection or you know all the president's right. men. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I, I think that's where uh, the difference between American filmmaking and European filmmaking kind of shows. I, I, I you obviously I'm painting with an extremely wide brush, but I, I think we like. Uh, or, or the American general audience likes storytelling to be like very clear, very solid, very A, B, C, D, E. Uh, and whereas when we watch these European horror movies, they're they're basically cinema, you know, just nightmares put to screen. Uh, you you watch Inferno, for example, and it's just like it's just crazy shit happens. You know, there, there's a scene where like uh, you know the the guy slips in the fucking pond, and the hot dog vendor nearby runs over and just murders him. And it's like, why did that happen? How did that happen? Who cares? It's like, <laughs> it's so, so I, I, I almost feel like that, that might've been the cause of like a lot of the butting heads and the stuff that's shot and then not used or other things that should have been shot and then wasn't and blah, 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 you know? So yeah, but say what you want. I mean, this isn't troll too. I mean, like the guy knows how to yeah, communicate yeah. with his actors. <laughs> yeah. He told the guy playing Michael to uh, walk as if he were wood moving through water. <laughs> That's French. So there you go. By the way, his yes. IMDb autobiography, or biography probably, uh, says that he's Swiss. So I don't know. Uh, mm. He's vaguely European. Let's just leave it at that. Let's move on to Jamie and her uh, horrifically wooden, stuttering boyfriend, uh, who I don't believe ended up winning Academy Awards later in his career, unfortunately. You be, you be nice to that kid. He was trying hard, and I like their relationship. <laughs> he's very loyal, um, but he's a, he's, he, he really is getting blown off the screen by Donald Pleasance and uh, Look, Daniel Harris. I was, I was a 10-year-old boy watching this, and I really sympathize with Billy, and you need to be nice to him, John. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, there is a beat between them in which he, uh, she is sad. He gives her a piece of jewelry, and she kisses him on the cheek. And I thought, that is a microcosm of all male and female relationships all the way through human history. <laughs> That's right, and, it's, and it was the basis for most of my relationships through <laughs> yes. now. So... She 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 is upset. Here is a present. Here's a kiss. Thank you. Let's get married. I'm watching right now. The movie's playing, and Rachel is uh, uh, okay. You already referenced this. Michael is in the closet, and she's picking out a sweater. Um, And this is like after police have shown up, and we found the dog, and so she's absolutely thinking that she's out of the woods and nothing is going on. And again, we, we, we feel like she's completely dead meat because she's so uh, off guard and uh, unprepared. And again, though, like it doesn't happen right here, you know? I just want to say, I, and I, I, I read dragging the conversation backwards, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry to listeners. I'm sorry to you guys. <laughs> sorry to I the director, John Carpenter. But I just feel like we do have to talk about one of the things that I absolutely detest in this movie is the 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 sound effects that accompany the bumbling police officers. Oh, oh yeah. dude! Oh, yeah. oh that is the what worst. A, what a the worst choice. 
I saw that yeah. that was in reference to Last House on the Left. Like, that is a direct yeah, homage. What? Yeah. That's but crazy just, to me. I, because the hell of it is, those guys actually give, like, a decent... Like, they're, they're mm-hmm. the actors are committed. And I love the line later on when the guy's like, you could have been dead. And the other one's like, yeah, you're lucky we're lousy cops. Yeah, yeah, I, I like how they kind of step on each other's lines. They have a good patter. They have a good rhythm. All that, uh, and that and yeah, worked if they weren't playing it like a Benny Hill sketch. Like yeah, what? the word I it's, used in my notes was vaudeville shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I was so surprised by it. I had to stop and go back to make sure that it was part of the movie because <laughs> it, co- it it comes so completely out of nowhere. I, I thought that maybe I had a, something running in another window. Yeah, dude, <laughs> yeah. Like, my, my an... next note after... Okay, here here we go. This is what I wrote. We meet the goofy cops. They even get a signature music cue. Yikes. Vaudeville shit. So crazy out of place. Yeah, dude. That does... Yes, Vic, I 100% agree. If I had to put, like, the top worst 10 worst things about this movie that would be number one i i was i was shocked by how like weird and sudden and terrible like i literally thought that i had another window open and it's like an ad started to play in a pop-up somewhere like i was looking around my computer like where where the fuck did that come from Mm -hmm. and went back i'm like oh it is in the movie there's like bing bing (laughs) <laughs> I mean, they might also put a fucking slide whistle on top of these guys. You know, it's it's yeah. ridiculous. So, Again, Alan Holworth, you 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 have sinned. You have uh, sinned against this movie. I think that it was that was something that the director wanted. Um, you know, that's sure. the kind of thing where a director wants to quote a horror movie that he saw because he knew he was going to direct a horror movie, and so he's like, "Oh yeah, let's put in a little you know Easter egg, tip of the cap to another horror film." Like that that that's how I read that. Um, is a bad yeah. like your your French switch Swiss director is responsible for that for that. Yeah. They, they are funny cops. We have to give them uh, uh, funny music. Mm-hmm. It's funny. <laughs> Little people hitting each other. It's funny. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, time bandits, suggest- baby, time bandits. Nice, John. Are you suggesting that the composer is somehow beholden to the film director on a movie because? <laughs> That is not the chain of command, that sir. That does not sound like my experience with the entertainment industry. I feel very com- collaborative. Everybody gets to say. Mm-hmm. Oh, so uh, we then get to Sheriff Meeker and uh, Loomis, and we have to check another one of the obligatory Halloween boxes. And I actually, I, I like something about this one quite a bit. It's uh, we need a story to come out of Loomis's mouth where he recounts his memories of Michael. And what I think is funny is that he says, my memory goes back 12 years to the night when I offered my, I'm going to show you, show you something. And he, he says, look, look at this. And he shows his burned hand. And I'm like, Oh yeah, we were there for that. So like now when Loomis goes down memory lane, it's like, yeah, we, we share that memory with him. (laughs) Yeah. I, I I did uh, chuckle at that moment a little bit because it discounts the fact that he also has burns all over the right side of his face. I'm I'm going to show you these burn scars that occurred from that night. It's like no, I, I'm looking at some. I I get it. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, and also, correct me if I'm wrong, but also confronting Sheriff Meeker, whose daughter died a year ago. I mean, all right, like obviously you remember, but you know, still, 
Mm. Yeah, that, that that beat made me laugh too. I will say, uh, besides a better, way better Michael Myers, uh, the scarring uh, makeup on Loomis is way better in this movie too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I wasn't quite buying it in four. I'm going to be honest with you. And in this one, it actually looks like kind of dangerous and cool. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, and the, it, not only do I, I like that makeup more, but also accentuates the fact that he is, uh, he's, he's kind of a really crazy guy in this movie. And he has like, in every one of these movies, he has some version of the, um, evil on two legs. Well, we get in this one, I prayed that he would burn in hell, but in my heart, <laughs> I knew that hell would not have him. <laughs> <laughs> that's, not, that's not a bad line, though. It's, it's, it's that's what I'm line. saying. I like it. After after 30 years, if you still got that one in the in the chamber. So now Tina comes back to the house, and she's got all kinds of groceries and whatnot. And we are like, this girl is a lead pipe lock to get killed, right? And we know he's in the next room stalking. We hear him breathing. We see him watching her run around the outside of the house. I'm not going to say that this movie is, you know, an incredible film, but I really appreciate the misdirection here that like, it's not what happens. We expect her to find a body, some kind of tableau, and then we get the coup de grace for the quirky best friend. And instead we have a wonderful scene, very short scene that isn't really high profile, but She's on her friend's bed, Rachel's bed, and, and, you know, we're pretty sure Rachel's dead, but we're not sure. She's hugging this uh, stuffed animal on the bed. It's like a reminder of her age in some way. And she Mm -hmm. ever so slowly climbs down from the bed. And we know the suspense is just thick because we know he's in the house. And it's like a languid suspense. It's not a forced or a histrionic or a, you know, score-driven nerve jangling it actually is like a foreign film i wrote in my notes and it does not feel like a scene from a random part five or an eight of an 80s or 90s american slasher franchise yeah i yeah it's a very strong scene and yeah it, I, I, by any set of rules this character would be murdered within the next 30 seconds and yeah we, we don't get the high-pitched violin mm-hmm. we don't get any clues that you should be tense in this movie in the scene but it just kind of is because I you know that that's kind of what happens in the movies like this right is she's gonna get murdered right now huh and we established spatially we know he's there you know yeah and then Sammy just kind of pops up and uh, they leave and Michael watches them go out the window and <laughs> I'm like oh okay what is- I, can I ask? I was a little curious about what is Tina's relationship to these people? Mm-hmm. Like she seems enormously comfortable. Like she knows where the spare key is. She walks in and like, oh, she's not here, but whatever. This is, you know, I'm just I'm here for the weekend and it's cool. And Mikey and I are gonna fuck in the car or whatever. You know, you guys <laughs> can in the bedroom and we'll fuck in the car. Or whatever. You know, she's got these these sort of plans laid out. She felt like an incredibly close uh, uh, family friend. But I didn't, I, I don't know, but obviously she wasn't in the fourth one. And I, and I, I just felt sort of confused by all that. I, w- w- did that all fit with you guys? Did you guys have any questions about that? 
Well, the the question that raised in my mind was uh, something that I brought up when we were podcasting about four was we introduce a similar character who drives yeah. the car. Mm-hmm. And I kept the whole time I, and and she vanishes from the movie, which I thought was disconcerting. Yeah, again, because it circumvents uh, standard slasher rules. You, you introduce these teenage girl characters, of course, they're going to get murdered, right? But no, she just kind of drives them around and says some funny stuff, and then she vanishes from the story. And I wondered if Tina wasn't supposed to be that character or an, or an analogy of that character or a version of that character or something. Uh, I, I couldn't quite get my head around that. I but, only wish that last time one of us had seen this movie and could make comments like that. I, I wish that one of us... <laughs> <laughs> well, nobody, nobody could have that kind of foresight. Okay, it's just unreasonable to expect. That. Actually, I'm sure it hit the cutting room floor, but I'm pretty sure I said that that character was a prototype of Tina. Um, and I, I agree with you, Mike. I think that they they kind of expanded on that, and maybe even you could squint and say they recast her, but like she's supposed to be that character in some kind of shorthand way. I didn't think just because she didn't happen to be around for the 48 hours or whatever we saw of the last movie that like uh, they didn't know each other, like any number of explanations for why she wasn't in the movie doesn't necessarily uh, convince me that she wasn't a, a family friend or a childhood friend for Rachel. Uh, we meet Sammy um, by the way here and we get some more funny uh, free spirited, uh, charming quirkiness from Tina and they, uh, they leave the house with uh, Michael watching and, and, she turns around, Tina does, like almost with a foreboding, a sense of uh, precognition, perhaps. And she looks and she just kind of sees him edge out of frame in the window. And doesn't yeah, I liked, I liked when she when she looks back and he's no longer just directly in the window. You can actually still see his shoulder a yes, little bit. you can. I liked that he didn't. Yeah, I, I liked that he didn't just teleport out of there. He just stepped off to the side. Oh, not only that, <laughs> you see the shoulder, and then he like takes this slow step out of frame, like a sidestep kind of move to mm-hmm. slide out of sight and vanish from from view. Yeah. Oh, by the way, Mike, yeah. you you you'd said something along these lines, and I just want to you know echo that that I, I in my notes I wrote so full of life are these kids, and I do think that is an important yeah. part of it. Sammy so, tells uh, Tina about her plans to lose her virginity tonight, and I think it totally works. It doesn't feel predictable or entirely empty to me. It seems like a somewhat resonant, reasonably emulated rite of passage moment for teenage girls, or whenever one of either gender decides to forego their chastity and take the plunge. However, I will say that later it's proven she doesn't have a condom. So that kind of freaks me out. I'm like, what? Yeah, but, but he does. And uh, I, I like that it came up in conversation that these characters are thinking about safe sex in a way that the characters in, you know, in the 1978 movie were, you know, <laughs> they couldn't be bothered. As, as long as they had beer and weed, they were all set to go, man. Yeah, how many <laughs> condoms do we get in Friday the 13th movies? I don't think that many. Yeah, uh, I, I think uh, in either 7 or the remake, I think there's a condom beat somewhere in there. But for the most part, yeah, these, these characters have a lot of sex, but they don't talk about uh, birth control at but all. To be fair, so. it was mostly pre-AIDS. Uh, I mean, the bulk of the early Jason films were... I think their 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 version their version of birth control was to just be murdered by a psychopath. Right. That that was their idea. <laughs> I won't get. <laughs> and when I say pre-AIDS, I mean among the the general public, of course, not uh, 
If I know within the next 60 seconds I'm going to get spear-gunned by a galoot living out in the woods, then yeah, I'm going to raw dog. What the fuck? Why not? (laughs) (laughs) So Sammy also says they should ban Halloween in this town, and that feels right, too. That feels like, again, like an an allusion to how people would be thinking about this. I think, uh, didn't you mention that they they toyed with the idea of a version of 4 where Halloween was banned and Mm -hmm. Hanfield? Perhaps that's Perhaps that's a callback to that idea. Like, they didn't hate it. They just wanted to put it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So we get Michael show- Mike showing up in his convertible. And mm-hmm. uh, I was reminded, one of you, I think Vic, like, referenced maybe directly part five of the Friday series where we have these two creaser characters. And yes. even though, like, I'm sure Mike will tell us that a lot of dudes in the 80s and 90s wore leather jackets and had some product in their hair and drove cars. But this guy just, he smacks of the fifties to me. And yeah, he actually reminds me. I, I, I kept coming to John Travolta and Carrie just for just, just as uh, douchebaggery, but also Arnie and Christine for uh, the fact that he's got, he's kind of reaching to this fifties ish vibe and, you know, kind of the slavish adoration of this car of his. Uh, he, he, he feels, you know, he, he feels like an asshole poser at the end of the day, but he's also a kind of an amalgam of two Stephen King characters. I, I think he's mostly this broad because sometimes when you're, when some people are screenwriting and they think, oh, well, he's a tough guy and they reach to the idea that they had of tough guys when they were of a certain age. So it's like, it, you, it's weird that you'll still see like greaser ish characters show up even in like contemporary films. It's odd. Yeah, it does seem like a generational reference point. If Rachel was still around in this movie and was actually the protagonist, like she would be the character being like, Tina, what are you doing with this douchebag? Like, he doesn't like you. you know what I mean? Whatever. Except there is no Rachel there, and Tina's the main character, and she's still with this douchebag. I'm, I'm delighted that he gets dispatched as quickly as he does. Yeah, in a more standard storytelling scenario, he would be the douchey, you know, wannabe bad boy boyfriend, and he would do, and she would be kind of stuck with him. And at some some place in plot point two, uh, she would be like, "I don't like you anymore. We're breaking up." And she would get with the nice guy who's been pining around after her, blah blah blah. Uh, and but it, we don't get any of that horseshit in this movie. Uh, although we do get a nice shot. When she comes out to the car and she kind of falls into his arms and the camera kind of goes over them in kind of a down shot. I, 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 you know, it's small, but I thought it was very smooth. There's some well, really just good think shots in this movie. In the, in the version of this movie where Rachel it doesn't die, let's just say. I mean, where she's the more traditional sort of final girl. Mikey's death doesn't impact the story in any way. Like, he just sort of suddenly evaporates. But because Tina is the the main character in many senses... His death becomes integral to the plot, where we have Michael Myers filling in as him in the in the car, and and you know the, all the different ways that that plays out. I just don't think that would have happened in a Friday the Thirteenth movie. It's part of why I think that that uh, uh, Tina's character as a final girl is is really kind of revolutionary in the context of a slasher film. Well, you referenced earlier, Mike, that that this film was looking at the first movie and kind of saying, you know, taking some cues from it. I think a classic example of taking something and doubling down on it and in a way doing it better than the original in the way a good cover song can somehow like 
isolate and enhance like certain elements of a song and by doubling down on that and really playing it up like they can you can argue make the song better in, in some ways yeah well bob with his uh sheet on his head you know when when michael is impersonating bob with the glasses this is the first movie up to this point where Michael does something like that. And you can argue they take it way farther and more profitably and really max out all of the potential of that with the guy pretend with Michael pretending to be the girl's uh, boyfriend. Yeah. I love not, not only when uh, you know they, they do two things from the first movie, a driving, they once again, put mm-hmm. it behind the wheel of behind the wheel of a car and it actually figures in in a significant well, manner, not just a car, but a distinctive car. I mean, that's yeah. the first one where it had the decal on it to part four, where he had the, the wrecker. And now here where he has this sports car. That's one of the notes that I made is that they, they always put Michael in something that you can spot a mile away for one reason or another. Yeah. And then at, at the very end of the movie, they put him in a cop car. And uh, yeah. one of the more terrible lines of dialogue in this film is uh, when, when that fat cop is looking out the window, is like, wait, there's a car coming. I think it's one of ours. And then you cut over, and it's a police car with like full lights and sirens going. It's like, oh, you think it's one of ours? <laughs> we'll give you that clue, dude. <laughs> Jason doesn't ride a motorcycle. He doesn't yeah. even ride a quad never, rudder out there in never, the woods. He, never anybody in a Hyundai, you know? Right, yeah. No, it's like, uh, yeah, My, Michael is a very vehicular villain. Uh, he's right up there with the hitcher in that regard. Well, you could um, say that Michael like is inherently a better uh, slasher character to write because your playbook is way deeper. Like you can do a lot more yeah. with him. He's capable of doing a lot more. Like almost anything yeah. that a normal person could do. Like any any kind of uh, sadistic serial killer, as far as toying with people or utilizing technology uh, to do so like you can kind of reasonably sell it for for michael and that just opens up a lot of possibilities and this movie takes full advantage when we were talking about ford john you mentioned that uh michael can pass in a way mm-hmm. that uh chucky candy man jason or you know freddie obviously you know he can actually walk amongst us as the wolf among the sheep uh and he, if he even took that goddamn mask off he would be even better at it. but yeah the scene in which uh tina's in the car with michael myers and he's driving mikey's uh douchebag mobile and uh she's like hey i want to stop over there and uh, he slams on the brakes, squeals backwards in a way that we haven't seen him do stuff like that since the first movie. Yep. Remember when they kind of when they kind of call at him and he does that with the station wagon, where it's like, "Oh shit, what's going to happen next?" And then that moment, that wonderfully, beautifully delicious moment, my personal favorite moment in this entire movie, is when she kisses him with that kind of caveman mask on, yeah. and you just see him glaring at her from yeah. behind. The, the <laughs> Isn't that where his grip tightens on the steering wheel? Yeah, too? yeah. We, we, cut, we cut to his gloved hands on the steering wheel, and he, his grip is tightening, but then we cut back in. You know, she's just this goofy girl, like, given, given and, and, like, the, the mask compresses, so he looks like an angry Muppet. 
but we have the, the, the psychotic <laughs> eyes of a serial killer glaring at her from behind the squashed rubber face. And it's like, this girl has zero idea how deeply her life is in danger. And so, but it's also a really funny visual, visually it's very funny. So it, it's it's kind of a brilliant moment. I, I would put this as like, I, I would expect something out like that out of like a John Landis movie. That moment works because she's Linda and not Laurie, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like if he was pretending to be Ben Tramer on a date with Laurie Strode, like it would just be a long, awkward car ride. Yeah. yeah you know what yeah. I mean? And it works so much better because you have this almost foolish forced boisterous extrovertedness uh, of Tina's character where she's like, I don't care if you're not going to talk to me. Like I'm going to carry the scene. I'm going to carry this moment. I'm going to make this the, you know what I mean? Just the way that she sort of dances outside the car, like come on, open the door, come on, open the door. Yeah. yeah, yeah I feel, well, I feel yeah. like Lori would have just left. Well guys, again, this is good writing in 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 a sense because she's buying the masquerade because she believes her boyfriend could be that laconic. And it pretty much works his impression of Mike. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because he is that much, you know, his douchebaggery pays off because she isn't like, wow, you're being really weird. She's like, yeah, this is who my boyfriend is. Is he, he, he sometimes just refuses to abide by even the most basic niceties of, Cur- of courtesies. society. Yeah. 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 Because he's so far up his own ass. There's the great line when Jamie, Jamie refers to him as the boogeyman and she's like, well, I guess you could call him that. Um, but I would argue that I think there's actually there is something in her that that so wants to deny that anything is wrong and so wants to believe that she is leading a normal life as a normal teenager, uh, that she even kind of willfully denies the things that are wrong in these scenes. Um, and I feel like that's very specific to her character. Like, I feel like that's a very conscious choice. Um, but it's also true it, that she missed out on the first movie too. You know, she was not around. We know that she did not experience this at all. And so this kind of optimism, this naivete that she shows this sort of upbeat Pollyanna ish, uh, attitude, you know, again, you can kind of understand it. Yeah. She's not lugging around the psychic scars of, uh, Rachel or Jamie, but I, I, I think that in four, you know, uh, Rachel is a very Laurie Strode-ish kind of protagonist where she's, uh, due to the fact that both characters are kind of the good girl, the nice girl, the girl next door, like we like them, they're uh, sympathetic, we understand that there's a, a strength that comes out under adversity, but they're also a little dull. They're just kind of good protagonists, whereas you have someone like Tina who's you know, also fun and interesting to watch at the same time. Consider the moment when she says to uh, uh, Sammy, who's, who's considering losing her virginity, to uh, Spitz, I yes. think, right? Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Um, yeah. But uh, she's like, she says something like, you know, well, Mikey and I like to do it in the car. When, the yeah. fuck have ever, when have you ever heard a final girl reference her sexual activity that blatantly that early in a movie? You know, that's, my, that's, uh, that's what puts you off the trail. That's I'm, what puts that, you off the trail. You're I'm sorry, guys. She talks. She, yeah, she talks about getting laid, and then she's still around an hour later. How the fuck is that happening? <laughs> I, I have to say that she does not actually meet the criteria for a final girl because she does not defeat Michael Myers in any way, shape, or form. 
she okay, she she delivers the futile sacrifice in order to save Jamie, but she does not uh, in any way defeat Michael Myers. What I, I mean, I guess what I would say is that is that it, for Halloween, both Halloween four and five, you have the the final girl winds up being split into a dichotomy of a teenage girl who fits some of the criteria and a ten year old girl who fits the rest of the criteria. So I think that it's not a single character here so much as it is split into these two characters, which in the course of, of part four, Rachel fits the bill much more and thus survives. Whereas in this one, I mean, I, you could argue Tina is the protagonist in the way that, I mean, Jamie, maybe Jamie is the protagonist in the way that uh, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is in part two, where we know her from the previous film. She's there she's sort of locked up in this hospital for a lot of the time. Um, and the, 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 the main character going through the motions that we associate with a final girl is Tina. But again, she's, she's just painted in these, even compared to uh, Rachel in part four, she's again, she, she's Linda. It's, I just find it incredibly subversive that they put so much screen time and, and invest so much character development in somebody who is already sexually active in, in somebody who is, uh, uh, I don't know, such a, a boisterously alive anti Laurie Strode character. Um, and also I, I, it's, it's interesting that she's also a deeply divisive character. I, when I was kind of bouncing around, uh, websites doing research, uh, people were, you know, uh, and even in the documentary, she talks about how at the the premiere, people applauded when her character died. Jesus. The crowd, yeah, yeah. People hate, there are a lot of people who fucking hate her. And, uh, you know, just looking at, like, the YouTube comments, like, uh, it's it's 50-50. It's down the line, man. Some people love her, and some people were like, I was so glad when she died. She was the most annoying person ever, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I... I I, I can squint and understand how you would come to that that feeling, but I don't get it at all. I love her so. Yeah, like it's a really interesting scene, and I think we're skipping around so much now. It's not bad to talk about this because, like, if the discussion is Tina, let's mm -hmm. like like let's touch on when she's trying to leave poor Jamie losing her mind quite a bit later in the film, and Tina has uh, been in a vision of Jamie's. We we believe, and she knows somehow that she'll never see Tina again. Sort of how uh, mm -hmm. Jamie's playing it. She's traumatized and tear stricken, but Tina's going anyway because she's so in love with Mike, as she describes that her heart is made of neon when you're in love, you know. And yeah, she she chews out Loomis because she blames him for Jamie's sad state. Again, as Vic has said, she does not believe at that point that anything is really happening. She's still going to go party mm -hmm. with Mike, but she's upset. And she drops this line, I'm never sensible if I can help it. Uh, and yeah, that's it, a great yeah. line of dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. She's just a really Although fun I, I, character. Yeah, that, that entire sequence where uh, Jamie has another one of her little flip outs. And once again, the cops actually go along with it. Where Loomis is like, uh, this little girl is having a psychic episode. Can you rouse the troops? And the and the cops actually do, and it actually turns out to be true. And but not in but because Michael kind of slips away, uh, not in a way that actually proves that the cops were right to the cops. If that makes sense, 
Um, it's not like, oh shit, this girl really does have a psychic connection. It's more like, well, great, here we are. <laughs> are you okay? Yeah, okay, fine, sure. And you know, from Tina's point point of view, it's like I was buying cigarettes. Now I'm surrounded by cops. What's up? You know, right, so. and that's where the police literally save uh, Tina from getting into the car with Michael, who is now there as Michael himself. He's changed max- masks. He's gone back to his old standby. And one presumes he's done toying with her. Now, here's an interesting point on this uh, dynamic that Tina and Michael have when he's nominally pretending to be her boyfriend. Do you think that she survives this to the extent that she does because she plays along and refers to him by his his own name and is you know generally sort of patient and tolerant and doesn't like drop the the game that he might be playing and says, who are you? Or you're not Mike or, you know, any, any number of things mm-hmm. that would, um, you know, the jig is up for him kind of thing. Is that like, does that speak well of her or is that that she's just so stupid in some way that like ignorance is bliss. And the fact that she does not, um, catch on to the truth is, is what saves her. We, we, we established that uh, all, all of the clues are there for her to assume that uh, her assholey boyfriend would be silent, that he would drive around with this mask. They would kind of act like this, and she would call him Mike. And I think that uh, Michael Myers is a lurker. He's an observer, uh, at least in one and five. And if, if a character is going to lurk and observe, he's going to do it for a reason. And if a scene is playing out in a way that interests him, He's going to go along with it longer. You know, in the first movie, he doesn't put on that sheet and then fucking bulldoze into that room and immediately stab her 47 times like he would in two or four. Uh, But yeah, Linda starts to have the reaction that I just described. You know, like Linda sort of spoils it. And and by the way, I should point out that Michael watches uh, Mike drive like a maniac. Like he he observes Mike for quite some time and definitely gets Mm -hmm. down some of these behaviors that we see. Tina seems desperate to live the life of a normal teenager, like in spite of everything else that's going on. And so I think in this scene, again, I think you can make the case that she is, she is kind of willfully ignoring everything that is weird about this because she's going to go to this party and she's going to have a good time. Um, so much so that even after the police pick her up and Mikey disappears and she goes back and Jamie's freaking and Jamie's sobbing and she, when she leaves, like not only does she leave, she leaves crying herself because she knows what she's doing to this child. But like, God damn it, I'm going to go to this party and I'm going to have a normal teenage Halloween, you know, moment with my, I'm going to fuck my boyfriend and I'm going to drink too much and I'm going to do all this stupid shit. Even though something in her is is sort of wizened beyond that, but she's like she's determined to be a stupid teenager in spite of not being a stupid teenager, and that's why I find that moment when she leaves, especially she's outside and she's she's crying having left her, and the the bumbling cops come out and she says, "Well, if you're going to follow me, like just give me a ride." She is possessed of a level of self knowledge and yet is willfully turning away from it. And I think you see it in, in this scene in particular. She knows something wrong. Something is wrong. Yeah, this kid but, is flipping right the fuck out. But then again, this, then again, 
this little girl constantly flips out a lot all no, the no, no. time. I, just, I think she knows something's wrong in the car. I think yeah, she knows yeah. something's wrong with Mikey. And she's just, she again, she could call bullshit like Linda does. And she doesn't, not because she senses some danger, but because, God damn it, I'm going to this party. Like, I don't care. I don't care what's going on. I don't care what's wrong with Jamie. I don't care what happened to Rachel. I don't care what happened with Michael Myers. I don't care about Haddonfield. I'm going to go have a, have a, a drunken teenage fun night. She does react to his, his reticent, you know, oh, you're giving me the silent treatment. I think that she really, you know, she, she knows that there's something wrong with his behavior, but she really does think that's Mike. It's Mikey. Cause he is this kind of weird fucking dude. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it's, anyways, so, so ignorance so, is bliss. So, yeah. Di- dialing back a little bit, but, uh, there is another interesting scene that occurs before this. This is where Jamie has another of her flip outs. And there, there are enough of these that I actually started getting sick of it after a while. Uh, by, by, the, by the, the scene that you just referenced, Vic, uh, by the time we get to that point, I had had enough, so much of Jamie's fucking screaming scenarios that I was completely on Tina's side. It's like, you know, you, I, I get it. You're throwing a tantrum, but I'm going to go fucking go to a party. And you're, you're not going to control my behavior with this fucking psychotic nonsense. But, uh, you know, unlike the cops. But before that, we get a Jamie flip out. And she gets so upset that she thinks that Michael Myers is appearing. And the, the way that it's shot and cut together is in such a way that we don't know for a fact because we know that Michael Myers is, is lurking in, in the neighborhood. Uh, he, it could be him, uh, but at the same time, it could be uh, kind of a dream sequence like she had in 4. And uh, it, it's such a frenetic pile of shots uh, that I found myself thinking of a, a Nightmare on Elm Street sequence mm. uh, or to, to a lesser degree, it. Uh, you know, a sequence where you know a, a, a reality goes so completely out the window that you know there there might be you know you, you keep expecting a guy to just kind of jump up in front of her out of nowhere, and it is interesting that she does end up in the boiler room at the end of the sequence, and the the Michael Myers who's been following her quote unquote turns out to be just like the handyman. He was like, "What are you doing in the boiler room, little girl?" Uh, but. You know, that extremely visual, extremely visceral sequence that I really enjoyed. Yeah, talk about uh, surreal and somewhat even Italian horror, like with the laundry blowing. And, you know, it's like a very trippy sequence that it's uh, dreamlike. And, yeah, it's kind of unclear. Like, it's very easy to believe that he's actually there. And that's another thing building off of the last film, as you referenced there. You know, like really getting some mileage out of something, a setup that we already know could happen, mm-hmm. which is that, yeah, she has these sort of delusionary things and she's relieved to find that it's comforting to have Loomis come back and, and, you know, these uh, employees at the clinic and it's all in her head maybe, but he, he starts in with more of his advanced interrogation techniques on her. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I thought it was great because while the nurse is still in the room, like he walks in, he's, he grabs her. He's, he's, he's rustling her around. He's and she's a terrified and we, you know, we reverse to her and she's a terrified little girl cowering in bed. And then, you know, and Loomis is our, he's our protagonist. In these fucking movies, and I, I, that's what I like about this one in particular is uh, 
they really put him out to the edge, man. He, he's, he's a straight-up nutcase in this movie, and I really like that. And he's telling her that Michael has dug up the coffin of a nine-year-old girl, and he snarls, What do you think he's going to do with that? Yes! <laughs> what a great line. Yes. I, 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 I feel like that, that, that feels like something that either they meant to shoot and didn't, or they changed their mind about it, or they shot, they shot and decided not to put it in the movie. I really f- felt the missingness of that. I really wanted to cut and see the, the cops standing around this open grave being like, what the fuck? Yeah. You know, so dark, uh, so I, twisted. Yeah. Because yeah. And that line, what do you think he's going to do with that? So my note on that was a fantastic line. Well delivered. Yeah. And because I also like the fact that they, they don't resolve it. We, we don't see a course of a nine year old girl for all we know, Michael Myers ate it. He said they took the coffin, so I sort of thought like like maybe he just dumped the body back in and just took the mm. coffin. That was kind of how I read that. It was sort of a strange choice, but no. I mean, I one of the things I liked was that was a throwback to one that we haven't gotten really before, with the sense of Michael is creating a tableau for presumably for Loomis, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Well, that, 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 that's something else that they that they uh, bring back from one is he creates that scene in the attic where we have not only dead bodies but also he lights a lot of candles. Uh, he's got the coffin there, you know, the and kind of per that they bring back from one uh, his habit of grave robbing, uh, which we didn't we, we we lost track of for a while. So, yeah, it's even though for, uh, you know, the filmmakers kept talking about how they wanted to go back to the first one, go back to the first one. This one is in a lot of ways, a lot more referential to the original Carpenter film. And say what you want. I think it it works. Like none of it ever struck me as, oh, God, you know, we're just recycling tropes from these movies. I think all of these things that we're referencing that honestly clearly come you know, from they're building on something from the original movie, but I don't feel like it's just, hey, remember this guy's nudge, nudge here, fans. You get to see right. this type of thing again. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I actually have a deep level of contempt for that kind of, uh, you know, the term that they use is fan service. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, exactly. That kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Hey, you remember that? Do you remember that? You remember that? Whereas in this movie, they're doing all these callbacks, they're doing all these references, but none of it feels like fan service at all, or 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 a lack of ideas. So let's just do the same thing, but stupider, like you see in like say uh, Halloween two or Jaws two or a sequel of that nature. This yeah. feels like okay. This is our world. These are our characters. This is how Michael Myers acts, and you know, so and these are the kind of things that he does. So yeah. When I first watched this movie this afternoon, I was like, oh, God, let, let's just get this one off the plate because I, I, I was kind of bored by it. But actually, the more we talk about it, the more I realize that, no, I actually think I really enjoyed this movie. Yeah, <laughs> just, yeah. I, I, I couldn't tell it at first. If it, I didn't think that I enjoyed it at first. But the more I think about it, I'm like, hey, this is actually really good. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, dude. I think that this conversation really kind of illuminates like how fucking cool this movie is in so many ways. Yeah. It just has some yeah. really glaring you know, pimples on its face. Yeah, I, it, this entire conversation is kind of, uh, hey, wait a minute, that actually is really cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously this movie is uh, a lot more interesting than we really even uh, thought it would be, so let's call it there. I think we still have about half of a film to talk about, and uh, we'll be back next time, and we'll pick it up. So hope everyone enjoyed it, 
And uh, we'll see you soon. Adios. Thank you.